Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Paul Church. I'm Managing Director of Interquest. We're a tech, data and digital recruitment company. This is our community slash webinar slash podcast series, People, Culture and Tech. Typically, the topics we tend to discuss on here relate to three real areas, I'd say, uh, company culture and values, diversity and inclusion, and then mental health and mental well-being. And all of those areas, of course, all overlap with each other. We've just hit in our community, I think we're near 850 members this week. This is the 18th week in a row. We're doing it as a podcast. Uh, so thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being a part of this. And yeah, please continue to do so. So today... Uh, I welcome Will Allen Mersch, and we're going to be talking about happiness and unhappiness and the data behind that. So Will's got a presentation for us. It's one of my easy weeks because uh, Will's going to be running the show today. Um, but Will, before, look, before we kick off, it'd be great if you could just give an intro into, into who you are, I suppose your journey to your role at Spill and Spill as a business as well. So my name is Will. I'm a partner at Spill. We are a mental health support company. We make it really, really easy for employees to book video therapy sessions and message with therapists um, all through Slack. So it's a service we sell to businesses and they make it available free at the point of use for employees. We've been going about two years as a business. And I think, yeah, the journey to Spill starting was like, I guess, with so many businesses kind of born out of frustration and being annoyed <laughs> and yeah, going through my own period of, of depression when I was working in a big advertising agency and just realizing how incredibly difficult it is to get counseling and therapy, both through traditional medical systems with waiting lists, but also through a lot of offerings in companies. There are what's known as employee assistance programs, kind of counseling helplines. There's a lot of stages you have to call up, you have to answer some questions. So our whole idea at Spill was if you actually design something to make it incredibly easy and friendly and accessible within a few clicks, the idea is that hopefully a lot more people then engage with therapy and counseling and engage with it earlier um, when they want to, not just when they really need to and they feel like they're at breaking point. Fantastic. Thanks, Will. Thanks for being with us. I know how busy you are. Thanks for joining us today. And to the audience, so Will's, Will's going to kick things off in a second. Um, if anybody's got a question throughout, please do pop it in the chat box uh, or just put your hand up and I'll happily throw the floor open to yourself. Will, if you just, I'll, I'll focus on looking at the, the, the questions coming in and I'll let you know if there's one to ask if you just, you just crack on. So, Will, over to you. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, so we're here today to talk about I guess why we might be less happy in the modern world, trying to unpick some of those reasons. We're going to try and take a bit more of a first principles approach. A bit like scientific inquiry, we're going to go through a bunch of factors that might be making us less happy, look at the data behind them, look at some psychological studies, and then try and draw those into themes to get a better understanding of what does seem to be making us less happy. Once we've done that, once we've define the problem a little bit more, we can switch into solutions mode and try and look at some different types of therapy, demystifying how they work, and then looking at some practical ways we can apply them to our own lives to try and just build resilience, positive mental health, make ourselves feel a bit happier. So this is really talking about mental well-being and happiness in the broadest sense of the word, in terms of you know the mental health we all have, the happiness or unhappiness we all feel, We'll be talking less about specific diagnosable uh, mental health conditions. This is very much a kind of inclusive talk that will be relevant to everyone. 
Up front, I just wanted to preface the discussion with a bit of data. I think it's always good to ground ourselves in where we are at right now with some numbers. And if we look at some recent mental health metrics, it seems like a lot of them are getting worse. That's both the more serious metrics. So proportion of people with psychological disorder has been on the rise. Proportion of people experiencing depressive episodes. Hospital admissions for non-fatal self-harm have gone up, especially amongst girls and young women. We've seen suicide rates go up, especially uh, amongst men and boys. And also just affecting all of us. If we look at levels of life satisfaction, happiness, well-being, all of those have taken a bit of a dip as well. And it seems like the change is most acute in kind of younger adults, but there are certain other age groups as well that experience some of these trends. Just seems to be less acute um, and most of the data does focus on the Western world that we looked at. What I think is most interesting in terms of trends amongst the data is if you look where the red boxes are, um, so I can just talk through for people who are listening uh, on the podcast, it does seem like over the last kind of eight, 10 years, basically over the period of the 2010s, is really when a lot of these mental health metrics have got worse. In the couple of decades before that, we were actually looking pretty stable across a lot of these metrics. And it's not the first time in recorded history where we've seen this kind of dip in mental health and happiness for a decade. But interestingly, it's always previously been associated either with a period of wartime or with a period of major economic recession. One of those two big explanatory factors was around. So the 2010s is unprecedented in the respect that it's the first time we've seen the significant drop in mental health but we don't have one of those two factors around to offer an explanation. So in the absence of a big single factor, it's likely there are a kind of a litany of smaller factors that perhaps are combining together to make us less happy. I'm going to go through a bunch of these. In order to make them easier to go through, I'm just going to split them into three time chunks. So first, we'll look at some recent factors. Then we'll look at some that have crept up maybe over the past half century. And then we'll actually park the modern world, go way back to early human history and think about things more from an evolutionary psychology point of view. So first up, recent factors. What has changed in the last 10 years that might be making us less happy? And no surprises for guessing that technology is going to be a part in here. One of the most drastic behavioral changes over the last 10 years is, you know, we've gone from no one having a smartphone pre-2005 to most of us not only having one, but also spending quite a lot of our waking hours on them each day. We're probably aware these aren't necessarily great connected devices for our mental health, but I think we think less about exactly why and how they're so bad for our mental health. Interestingly, there's been research done looking on how people spent their time in unconnected desktop computers pre the year 2000. And they mostly spent that time in a single use state. So they'd be in one computer game for hours on end. They'd be in one spreadsheet. If you contrast that with connected device time now, so laptops and smartphones, people are constantly flitting between use states. So they'll be moving between tabs, between apps, between images, between profiles. That screenshot uh, on the right, which just shows lots of contrasting notifications from different apps, I think dramatizes that point well. And what this seems to be correlated with, at least, is a big reduction in our attention span. 2015 was a big year for the wrong reasons because it was the year in which a human attention span first ever fell below that of a goldfish. Um, this was a study done by Microsoft in which they dangled balls in front of goldfish's faces amongst a busy background, saw how long they could concentrate for, 
they could do nine seconds, humans can now only do eight, down from 12 seconds, as close as kind of 10, 15 years ago. But why is this necessarily bad for our mental well-being? Because you could argue, you know, an attention span, a shorter attention span is just an improved information filtering device. Well, when social psychologists study, what are some of the long-term determinants of contentment? And contentment is kind of that base level satisfaction that really helps us to weather short-term setbacks and failures, kind of short-term variance in mood. If we have that, we become a lot more resilient. And one of the key determinants they found of contentment is something known as completion fulfillment. It's the sense of satisfaction that we get that's quite deep. When we start on a task or a project, maybe it gets quite hard, we have to muddle through, we have to persevere, and we finally finish it. And it gives us this really deep sense of satisfaction. You know, it's why a lot of us like working on hard work problems or, you know, trying to read books, trying to master instruments, gardening, DIY, whatever it might be. And the thing about all this increasing time we're spending in the connected world is that it's so hard to finish anything in the connected world. It's hard to get that sense of completion fulfillment. When one TV episode ends, the next one auto plays. When you finish an album on Spotify, it goes down a limitless playlist. You can never finish the news online. You can never get to the bottom of your social media feed. And actually, the developer at Facebook who invented the idea of the limitless social media feed he actually has apologized since and said that he wished he hadn't done it because he thinks it's been so bad for public health overall. So maybe something to do with how our brains innately want to finish stuff versus the unfinishable nature of a lot of this time in the connected world. One of the other really big differences that is correlated at least with increasing time in the connected world is it's caused this huge explosion in the number of decisions we have to make every single day. For most of history, humans have only had to make hundreds of decisions a day, typically. Things like, you know, should I sleep in the cave tonight or outside? Should I forage for berries or hunt for meat? The average human today now has to make over 35,000 decisions every single day. And even though a lot of those are seemingly smaller, who should I forward this picture to? What time should I set an alarm? We're learning from brain scans that humans are actually not very good at distinguishing innately between what is an important decision and what's not. It's why a lot of you might have experienced that phenomenon known as choice paralysis, when you're confronted with quite an easy decision, seemingly, like what to order off a takeaway menu, but your brain kind of stresses out and feels the weight of that decision because it's worried it will make the wrong choice. Like with so many things, there's an evolutionary reason behind this. You know, for most of history, opportunities have been scarce. We never knew where our next meal would come from. So when we were presented with an opportunity, say we found a bush full of berries, our brain would encourage us to, you know, hoard as much of that as possible, to seize that opportunity because we never knew when the next one was going to come from. The problem with 35,000 opportunities a day 35,000 decisions, it's kind of the same thing, is that we literally can't say yes and do all of them because of, well, the nature of how time and space work. And so we have to say no to 99% of them, whereas our brains are still fundamentally hardwired to hate turning down any opportunity. And what some of the more public comparative forms of social media in particular aim seem to do is just really reinforced to us all of those thousands of opportunities we're not able to take up. You know, the promotions we're not getting at work, 
the trips we're not going on, the great times with our friends that we're not having all the time, which does seem to contribute to this feeling of FOMO that over time is correlated with poorer mental well-being. So maybe some stuff around many more decisions and having to miss out on a bunch of stuff could be related. On a more physiological level, there's been an interesting change in the amount we sleep over the last 10 years, it seems. Around about you know, 2011, 2012, our level of sleep seemed to drop off slightly. Again, potentially correlated with more time uh, on connected devices. It's quite a new science, the science of the link between sleep and mental health, but we are learning more and more with each year. The Nobel Prize was won a few years ago into work done specifically on the circadian rhythm, which is that natural sleep-wake cycle, and how that actually plays a really important role in regulating our mood. If we go to bed and wake up at dramatically different times each night, key hormones like melatonin, serotonin get secreted at different times and in different amounts. And that like physiologically just makes it a lot harder for us to maintain like mood stability and mood stability and emotional regulation is so important to strong mental well-being. Really, really hard otherwise if our mood is constantly all over the place. An interesting behavioral change that we do have quite strong data for over the past 15 or so years is that the amount of free, unstructured social time we have has consistently been decreasing since 2005 or six. basically the exact year smartphones were first released. The prevailing theory behind why this is, is that a lot of unstructured in-person social activities are quite slow burn. The like value of them is not super you know, clear and short term. I'm talking about activities like you know, maybe going on a walk with someone, maybe sitting at dinner in semi-silence with your partner, sitting on the sofa next to someone kind of talking. When we've got a device in our pocket that offers endless entertainment and a very quick serotonin cycle, it just raises the threshold for how much short-term return we want out of free time. And the reason why this might not be great for us is that over time, it's been correlated, this reduction in in-person social unstructured time, very closely with increased feelings of loneliness and increased feelings of disconnection. And not only is that obviously just directly emotionally painful, and they're not nice emotions to sit with uh, on a kind of medium to long-term basis, but also there appears to be this interesting second order side effects from loneliness in terms of how they kind of change how our brain works and how our brains interpret the world. There was a great study done in America, which took a group of people who identified as lonely and a group of people who didn't, put them into a brain scanner and showed them three photographs of neutral like landscapes. So I think there was a scene of a beach, a scene of some woods, a scene of a street. The people who identified as lonely were twice as likely to have the part of their brain responsible for fear and threat light up. It lit up twice as quickly in 150 milliseconds instead of 300. So they were literally more likely to see threat in a kind of objectively neutral image. And over time, that can that increased preponderance of threat, that high alertness can kind of manifest basically as the symptoms of anxiousness. The thinking here is, again, you know, for most of human history, we've lived in tribes. If we did happen to get separated from the uh, tribe, the feeling of loneliness would kind of kickstart that anxiety fight or flight response system to give you the urgency to get back to the tribe as soon as possible. But with increased kind of nuclear living, it's possible a lot of us are living with this kind of low level sense of disconnection that is then contributing to a low level sense of anxiousness as a second order side effect as well. 
But because all of these changes that we've gone through so far, all of these factors, because they've only taken place over the last 10, 15 years, we haven't had time for a cohort of people to live through them and then live all the way through to old age. So we don't have strong long-term data yet on what the effects are on public health. It's a bit like where we're at, I would argue, as we are with like vaping and e-cigarettes. They've kind of been around maybe 10, 15 years mainstream. We don't have long-term data on them. And as a result, you know, public health bodies are divided. Some of them think it's great as a smoking cessation aid. Other bodies are trying to ban them because they think it's perhaps the levels of nicotine are you know, really harmful in the long term. Worryingly, some of these behavioural changes, the effects are most pronounced amongst children. So in particular, free unstructured time, playtime amongst children. Most of the 20th century we have data for, they've got at least 90 minutes a day uh, in terms of that free outdoor time. That has plummeted and is now only at 41 minutes a day, which is actually less than UN, UN human rights law states that prisoners, even prisoners who are in maximum isolation for bad behaviour, UN human rights law states they should get at least one hour outside each day in the courtyard of free time or else it's considered inhumane. So kind of crazy that even our own children are not meeting this UN human rights baseline. And even though we haven't been able to study the effect on humans long term because um, we haven't had the literal time, we have been able to study the effects on rats because rats have a dramatically shorter lifespan. In these studies, young rats are allowed to do formal exercise on their own so they can run on a little rat wheel whenever they want to remove that overall positive impact of exercise on mental health. What they're not allowed to do, interestingly, is just have that free unstructured playtime. So they're not allowed to have kind of free rough and tumble play. If they ever try to do that, the researcher would just put their hand in between those rats to stop that play happening. And within six months, those rats are substantially more likely to experience significant symptoms, either of depression on one hand or hyperaggression on the other hand. So it seems like this free unstructured time, really, really important in helping us kind of work out how we navigate risk, how we address boundaries with other people, basically how we develop autonomy and a sense of kind of resilience. So important at any point in our lives for developing strong mental well-being, but especially so it seems during those formative years of the brain in adolescence in particular. So when we put it like that, I feel like there's quite a lot of stuff that has changed over the past 10 years quite dramatically. And it's all been quite kind of behavioral and behavioral changes can and do happen very, very fast. We can go in 10 years from no one having a smartphone to most people having a smartphone. When we look at some slightly more kind of cultural societal changes, you know, in terms of the meaning we find out of life, what we focus on, what we deem to be important, these typically tend to take a bit longer to really come to the foreground. It's a bit like, you know, steering a ferry instead of a little dinghy. It just takes longer for the bow of the ship to catch up. So I think a lot of these changes, cultural changes, have been happening slowly over the past 50 or so years, but they're really starting to snowball recently and we're starting to perhaps reach a tipping point and feel the effects of them really, really becoming quite acute. And basically over the past 50 years, it seems that we've been in the West at least increasingly focusing on things that aren't shown by data to make us that much happier, specifically personal income, material wealth, living standards. Whilst these have shot up on average in many Western countries per person, the percentage of people who would identify as very happy has slightly declined over that same period of time. And the link between money and happiness is an interesting one. Um, it's very highly correlated at lower levels of income. So if you're a household on $5,000 a year and you go up to 12000 
that will be correlated with a big improvement in mental well-being. Things like, you know, security, clean water, heating will make a big difference to how we feel. What's often surprising is how low the level of income is above which additional income has not been shown to make us that much happier. Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton, who are two economists that were working out of Princeton at the time, did a big meta study where they combined together all the other cohort studies they could find on money and happiness, ended up with 200,000 data points, so quite a robust piece of work, US-UK prices, and they found that above £28,000 per person per year additional income doesn't really seem to make us that much happier at all. So quite surprising, actually, that that wasn't a higher figure. But say what you want about you know, materialism and whether that's a valid goal to go for. I think just if we look objectively at how that goal is structured, it is structured in a very psychologically unrewarding way. Some researchers at Yale asked people on 30 grand a year how much money they would need to be happy, and they said 50 grand. They asked people on 50 grand who said 100 grand, and they asked people on 100 grand who said 250 grand. So literally, even in proportionate terms, that goal is getting further away from you the closer you get to it. And if I was to kind of reverse engineer and design the most demotivating goal possible, I would design this. Imagine running after goalposts and the closer you get to them, the further away they get. You are naturally just going to want to disengage and feel super deflated and feel super disinterested. So the way that materialist goals are structured, I think doesn't really, really work with how our brains like rewards to be focused. And I guess the prevailing hypothesis behind why this happens and why we tend to be lured into these goals is as humans, we tend not to hold our expectations stable over time. And instead, we update them based on kind of new comparative sets. It's been shown to even exist amongst primates. Um, if I give a piece of cucumber to a monkey in return for a little rock, that monkey's happy to make that trade indefinitely until they see me offering a grape to another monkey nearby in return for the same rock. A seemingly better trade. They prefer grapes to cucumbers, apparently. At that point, the original monkey will lose their mind. They will start screaming. They will refuse to trade anymore for the cucumber. There's something about relative differences that make us recast how we see our own situation. And at its most extreme, this can even not only affect how we feel, but even how we behave and in quite a dramatic way. There was a great study done in Canada that looked at lottery winners, people who'd won about £100,000 or the equivalent thereof, followed, interestingly, not them over the next two years, but their immediate neighbours, and found that the neighbours of lottery winners start spending dramatically more themselves on flashy items like cars and fridges. They become 10% more likely to take on significant debt and 14% more likely to go personally bankrupt. So really crazy, this extent to which we let these relative differences really, really affect how we feel. Fundamentally, this is not like a new problem. It's something that's always existed. It was pointed out as long ago as the 18th century by a French philosopher who I think puts it really nicely by saying, if you only wish to be happy, this could be easily accomplished. But we wish to be happier than other people. And this is always difficult for we believe others to be happier than they are. It's a bit of a tongue twister. But to me, the point that's so key is that last point is that we believe others to always be happier than they are. And for me, this is the best logical argument for why it's good for us to talk about how we feel honestly more often and say when we don't know and say when we're feeling a bit crap. If we go around life saying, we're fine, you know, I'm great, my job's great, my relationship's happy, my friends are great, 
we're effectively telling people we're happier than we are. And that means if a person hears enough of that, they are going to think they are therefore less happy than the average person. And over time, that feeling really just creates self-doubt, negative self-image, so easy for more serious anxieties and things like imposter syndrome to fester. So saying when you're not sure or saying when you don't feel great, not only is worth it because there's a direct therapeutic impact, it feels great to get stuff off our chest, but it also helps other people to create a more realistic web of expectations from which to then base their own happiness on. A lot of what we've talked about so far culturally, I guess, has been at this like universal human level of the psyche. Some aspects of mental health do seem to have slightly more of a culturally dependent component. If we look at the rate of anxiety prevalence, for example, around the world, some countries have very high anxiety rates above 6%. Some countries have really, really low rates down around 1%. And at first, you know, if you're to kind of look at a map of these countries, it seems like it's just correlated with GDP. You know, higher income countries have higher anxiety. But actually, it's those higher income Western countries. So Northern European countries, North America, Australia, where anxiety is consistently high above 6%. Countries or some countries in the Far East with similarly high levels of income, actually a lot of them have quite low anxiety rates, down around 1%, 2%. So places like Taiwan, Japan, Singapore. And we can perhaps hypothesize there are structural differences, maybe better social security support from the government in some of those Far Eastern countries. But the key attitudinal difference that comes through again and again in research between those two regions is this predisposition towards slightly more individualistic thinking in the Western countries versus slightly more collective thinking in the Far Eastern countries. And it was shown by a really nice experiment by two researchers who showed a photo of a fish tank to some primary school age kids and just asked them to write in their exercise books what they saw. Very open brief. The kids in the US and UK tended to describe the main fish. So its stripes, its colors, its perceived personality traits. Whereas the kids in Japan and Taiwan tended to describe all of the fish as well as the leaves, the bubbles, the backdrop. So literally seeing the same objective image, much more in terms of a collective sum of its parts. So maybe we can hypothesize something about increased individualism in the Western countries, forcing us to, I guess, you know, very much feel like solo entities, like our own burdens are ours alone, feeling the weight on our own shoulders, less likely to, you know, realize perhaps the role of things like luck and chance in a lot of what we do. And not only is individualism more pronounced in the West, it has been getting so much more pronounced over the past 50 years. The percent of Western young adults who would agree with the phrase, I am a very special person, 12% in the 1950s, it's now 80% of people who would agree with that phrase. And for me, I think if you have to boil a lot of what we've been talking about, why we're less happy, down to one statistic, to me, this would be at the nub of it. They say happiness is reality minus expectations. You know, our reality has not got substantially more dangerous in terms of daily risk of death. What has changed? Our expectations have absolutely gone through the roof. Obviously, there are positive sides to that. You know, we're more likely to feel like we can go out and make a difference in the world. But it really does come with this double-edged sword that we're more likely to feel like we're not doing enough. We aren't enough. And that can be quite a painful thing to have to reconcile. So a lot of cultural changes there in terms of the meaning we find in life, what we focus on, where we deem happiness to be found. 
I think we now need to look a bit about, I guess, what our brain is evolved for and how some of the things it's naturally ends up thinking about might be for evolutionary reasons that are not necessarily always in the best interests of life in the modern world. And the reason behind this is that the modern world has only existed for a very tiny proportion of total human history. Humans have been around, give or take, 200,000 years. And for 199,000 of those, we've basically been you know, out on the plains fighting to survive. Our daily chance of death by battle or disease has been really dramatically high. Only in the last thousand years has that plummeted and we've moved towards this very kind of industrialized, very urbanized modern living. Even during coronavirus, daily risk of death by disease dramatically lower than um, previous in history. The problem with a thousand years is it sounds really big as a number, but when you think about it in terms of subsequent generations of people having kids, it's not that many. It's maybe 30 generations if we assume a pessimistic lifespan. And that's just definitely not long enough for big evolutionary changes to happen. So the best way to think of it is we're kind of walking around this modern world, still all wearing brain hardware that for all intents and purposes thinks it is in this previous era. It thinks you're about to die every day. And therefore, a lot of what your brain tends towards maximizing is not how do I feel good and be happy? It's how do I not die every day? And those are two very different objectives, you know, biasing towards survival, very different from biasing towards happiness. And there are a bunch of implications this has for a variety of kind of ways in which our brain works. One of the big ones is that it means we have very sensitive amygdalas as humans. That's the part of your brain that's responsible for scanning for fear and threat and kind of interpreting neutral events as threatening. It's traditionally kept us, you know, safe. For a lot of time, we were potentially hunted by predators. And so, you know, interpreting a shadow as being potentially a lion was very helpful to have as a bias. The problem in the modern world is when that disconnects with our actual daily risk of death, it starts to just impact with our ability to perform day-to-day tasks. It's a bit like having a burglar alarm on your house that is very sensitively tuned. If your neighborhood is now kind of reasonably safe, that is just going to start impeding with your life. It's going to go off that alarm whenever you take out the bins, whenever an Amazon package gets delivered. And that's kind of how our sensitive amygdalas are in the modern world. We go about our day, we have Zoom calls with colleagues, we talk to our partner late at night before bed. And all the while that amygdala is kind of scanning and going, is that person trying to challenge me? Are they trying to make me feel small? Are they trying to threaten me? Are they trying to leave me out? Am I not enough for them? And, you know, over time, that can really just lead to this low level background gnawing sense of anxiousness and kind of uncertainty that so many people in the modern world kind of describe as empathizing with. So lots and lots of factors, basically. I think there seems to be quite a lot of data and quite a lot of studies that suggest that a bunch of things would seemingly explain why a lot of us do feel more anxious, less happy, less mentally secure in the modern world. I think to kind of move forward and make them useful, we need to try and group them into themes. And I think to us, there were three big themes uh, that those factors can be drawn together by. The first was that there's been a big change in how we spend our time and attention, more screen time on connected devices, less unstructured social person time. Number two, our brains are still focusing on survival, not happiness. And that leads us to think about things and have these biased thoughts that are not necessarily in our best interest in the modern world. And then three, maybe there's a point around how we're kind of looking for happiness in the wrong places. We're perhaps telling ourselves the wrong things are important. 
we're subscribing to the wrong narratives, basically. We kind of need a different story to tell ourselves about what's important. And I think what's interesting as a red thread between those three themes is that they're all at the level of, you know, our psychology. It's what we think about, our attention, what we focus on. So I think that's where the solution is too. We need a psychological solution to a psychological problem. That's why we're going to be talking about therapy. Therapy is always focused on the same end goal, which is improving how you feel, changing how you see yourself, how you see others, how you see the world. There are different types of therapy. It's a bit like how there are different types of exercise. You know, yoga and tennis will both make you healthier or fitter in some way. They just do it with a slightly different kind of view on how that will be done. And that's the same with therapy. So we're going to look at three different types of therapy, life coaching, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, and psychotherapy. They all are going to try and make you feel better and change how you see yourself in the world. They'll just do it from a slightly different starting point and with a slightly different thesis on how it's going to be done. So I'm going to walk through the approach of each of them and then how that might be applied to you and your life in a way that's useful to take forward. So life coaching is very much all about the idea that how we spend our time and attention hugely impacts how we feel. And, you know, even small changes to things like our daily routine, once you multiply that by every day in your life, you know, how you spend a day is kind of how you spend your life. That can have a really, really big impact on how you feel and is often a really good place to start if you want to improve how you feel. There are big time use studies done on how we actually spend time where people are kind of pinged on apps throughout the day and we build up quite a, a realistic picture. A lot of the most common ways of spending time are not shown to make us that happy. Things like commuting in the old world, watching TV, going on our phones. There are a bunch of things that have been shown in contrast to give us at least a 0.1 boost on a 10-point scale of mental well-being over a period of two years or more, shown by a variety of studies. I can pick out some of them here. It's kind of what you'd expect. It's exercise, good sleep, you know, purposeful work, giving back to others. The one that always surprises me is group singing. It's just like very specific. Um, but I guess, you know, a lot of organized religion over the past 2000 years often involves a practice of group singing. So maybe subconsciously, we've kind of worked out that it's psychologically healthy for us. I think the problem with a list like this is that it's well-meaning, but not that helpful. It's a bit like diet advice. Like I know I should always eat vegetables and whole grains. The problem is not, I don't know that. The problem is how do I actually act upon that and work that into a daily routine that's more likely to stick. So there's a tool from life coaching that I think can be really helpful in this regard, which is called the 100 blocks tool. It's basically just a big square divided into lots of little squares, 100 little squares, in fact. And this is just a way of thinking about your time, because if you sleep a normal amount in a night, you have 100 blocks uh, of 10 minutes each with which to do stuff. And I have to preface, this is very much not a productivity tool. If anything, it's kind of an anti-productivity tool. And what you do is just get two of these blocks, label each of the 10-minute squares on one with how you'd uh, actually spent all of those 10 minutes yesterday, and then label each of the 10-minute squares on the other with how you'd like to spend them from an end state point of view. So some you might spend working, some you might spend doing sport, being in nature, connecting with family, relaxing. Maybe you like to leave some blank. And what this forces you to do is two things. One is see how you actually spend your time, which is often very surprising. We are terrible predictors as humans of our own behavior. And the second is because there's a constrained budget, you have to make trade-offs. You know, we all like a lot of things, but when you give, have a constrained budget, you're forced to make some hard decisions. 
So I did this, realized I spent four blocks a day cooking. I don't even like cooking that much. Made me think, can I cut that down to two blocks, take some shortcuts like ready meal kits or frozen vegetables and move two of those blocks to something that would make me and those around me feel better. Calling my parents, going on a walk, whatever it might be helpful. So a good place for kind of quick wins and easy actions to start with. And life coaching in general is very much full of like practical tools and frameworks. If you're quite a logical person, I think that's quite a good place to start. The second type of therapy we're going to look at is CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very much concerned with this idea that you are not always your thoughts and that a lot of the thoughts that feel like ours, these kind of worrisome thoughts of, you know, is everyone out to get me or am I not good enough or what's happening here? They're actually just kind of thrown up to us into our brains by this like survival fear based part of our brain. And although we can never totally eradicate these thoughts from coming into our brain in the first place, because to do that, we'd have to kind of overcome 200,000 years worth of evolution. What we can do is just try to spot these thoughts and label them. And that just means they're kind of, they, they can float by a bit more easily without us really fixating on them and internalizing them and feeling like they're ours and getting to the point where they really settle into deeper rooted anxieties. And there are a bunch of common survival fear-based biases we can all be party to. Things like dichotomous all or nothing thinking, where we love to paint events as like all this or all that. We're quite bad at, you know, living with ambivalence and gray area. Things like what if causal chain thinking. Our brains love to go down a hypothetical chain of events before it's happened. So, you know, what if I'm the first one to get to that party and then I'm, you know, no one else is there and I have to stand on my own and then I look weird and then I have to explain to people why I'm on my own and our brains love to go down that chain before something has even happened. Those are just two examples. I think in general, it's not super useful again to just learn what these biases are off by heart. It's a bit like, you know, in history class in school where you had to learn dates of battles just for the sake of it, you're probably going to forget it the day after the exam. It's far better to try and integrate an easy, repeatable daily habit that will help you spot some of these biases. And that's why we're such big fans at Spill of daily journaling. This is not pouring your heart out into prose or writing really eloquent um, stuff in your diary. It's just jotting a few thoughts down, but doing it every day. So I do mine on my phone notes, so I don't have to remember a book. I do it Genuinely, I would say in like under 90 seconds a day. I do it after I brush my teeth in the evening because if you add a new habit onto a current habit, it's more likely to stick. And there are a bunch of journaling techniques you can look up online, but the one I use that really works is called Top Tail and Learning, where I jot down a top, which is a good thought, a tail, which is a bad thought, and then a learning, which is something I learned. And it does feel great in the moment. You know, it's proven to show that offloading your thoughts makes you feel lighter. But it's also really, really useful in a couple of weeks' time when you look back and it's so much easier to spot, I guess, patterns amongst your thoughts. So I was worried a few weeks ago that a colleague was trying to kind of push me out of a project. And I could look back and go, actually, you know, was there any evidence for that? Or is that more likely to be kind of correlated with a particular bias based on how I was feeling at the time? So hard to do in the heat of the moment because when we're going through an emotion, it feels real. It feels all pervasive. We can't see the wood for the trees. If you turn your thoughts into data by writing them down and you give yourself the benefit of hindsight, it's so much easier to spot those patterns. And once you spot them, you can look out for them in the future and you're less likely to be kind of taken in by them.
And then finally, the third and final type of therapy um, that we're going to look at is psychotherapy, which is really concerned with, I guess, a lot of these unconscious narratives that we subscribe to often without realizing it. On a very meta level, one example would be a spectrum on one hand where, you know, I am good, the world is good. And on the other end of the spectrum is I am bad and the world is bad. We all kind of lie somewhere on that spectrum, but often you know, these are embedded stories that are so deep and that are the result of how we were conditioned as we grew up and the sum of all the relationships we've had and the sum of all our experiences that, you know, we often are not super aware acutely of the stories that we have embedded within ourselves. And what psychotherapy aims to do is kind of bring up some of those stories into the conscious realm and kind of shine a torch on them, interrogate them, and in doing so, give you the power to change them if you so wish, if this is not a helpful story, if this is a story that you think you could take a different approach to, if it would make you feel a bit lighter or make you make it easier for you to change your behavior, essentially. So whereas life coaching's thesis is very much like behavior leads to different stories and thoughts, psychotherapy is much more on the level of different stories and thoughts can then lead to changes in how we feel and changes in how we behave. And I guess the criticism is it can sound a bit fluffy, right? It can sound a bit hopeful, but it's crazy the research on people who go through psychotherapy and do have these changes in key personality traits after as little as kind of two or three sessions. Traits like, you know, how open they are to experience, how emotionally stable they are, even how kind of extrovert they are. And it does sound a bit fluffy, but I think it's so interesting the evidence that's there on the effect that different stories can have on how we feel. Um, this study is the only one I don't have a source for. I heard about it in a lecture last year and I wasn't quick enough to write it down, but I remember it because it was such a clever experiment. Some postgrad students in America gave out cups of lemonade for free on campus to undergrad students. They told half of them it was lemonade plain old lemonade, and they told the other half it was a lemonade cleanse. So the only difference was the words. And then they surveyed them. The people who'd had the lemonade cleanse reported feeling lighter, more virtuous, and even happier. So it sounds a bit fluffy, but genuinely different stories can have a huge impact. And the ultimate example of this I would cite is the placebo effect. You know, I'm taking this sugar pill. I'm telling myself it's going to make me feel better. That's nothing but a story. But the research on, you know, not only the psychological effects, but the physiological effects, people, you know, can have these dramatically different recovery times just with a placebo effect. It just, I think, shows the power of a story and how a story can change how we feel. So three types of therapy, life coaching, CBT, psychotherapy. We really believe that they're best viewed not as alternatives, but as kind of a toolkit from which to pick and choose different techniques based on you as an individual, what you're going through at the moment, what you want to work on at the moment. And they can even be used kind of at the same time. I recently have been doing some work in therapy and my therapist has been using a bunch of these different techniques. So I guess something I've been struggling with recently has been just feeling very, very overloaded and stressed at work, taking on way too much. Interesting discussion with my therapist that ended up with us talking quite a lot about people-pleasing tendencies and how I have this desire to kind of say yes to everything and keep people happy. I got given a really interesting life coaching exercise, which was to go away and say no three times in the next week. 
either to professional or personal things. If anyone has people-pleasing tendencies like me, you will know how like physically uncomfortable that can be. And then I got given a CBT technique, which was just to journal, to free journal about how it felt to say no, and then go back and analyze it. And it was so interesting where my brain went. I was like, if I don't meet that friend for coffee, we won't have seen each other in three months. And then they will slip to becoming a worse friend. And then I'll have no close friends. And then no one will come to my birthday. And then no one will come to my wedding. And it was just this crazy explosion of that kind of fear survival-based thinking that I was letting get the better of me. And then finally, on more of a psychotherapy approach, I guess trying to understand a lot of the formative relationships I had previously, a lot of the kind of internalized messages in my childhood that perhaps were leading me to really avoid conflict and to really want to, I guess, keep the peace and keep people happy above this kind of need to set my own boundaries that would actually ultimately be more helpful uh, and help me feel better. So I think I'd like to end it on the point that there are loads of great resources in these three fields that we can all draw upon that have been shown to really help improve our mental strength, improve our resilience, improve how we feel. But I think they're best viewed a bit like a kind of a toolkit or a buffet. It's best to kind of try a bunch of them out, depending on what you're going through at the moment, depending on what you want to work on. And hopefully you'll find some stuff that really works for you. Stick with the stuff that works, abandon the stuff that doesn't. I think a kind of test and learn and improve methodology is probably the best way to go about it. And that's definitely, you know, how I think about uh, going about it. Mindfulness, for example, lots of research behind it. It didn't work for me personally. Some of these techniques around journaling and practical exercises really did work for me. So do a bit of an experimentation, find what works, and then really try and embed that. That's how to give yourself the best chance of staying really mentally strong, which I think we need at any point in our lives. But I guess especially coming out of this strange global pandemic situation, navigating what the world is going to look like for work and socializing in future. It's a great time, I think, this reset to try and embed some new habits and new ways of thinking that hopefully we can take forward with us. Thank you so much, Will. I mean, that was, that was fantastic. I've had uh, a few questions in on the chat. All the questions are the same, and that was, can we get these slides? Because this information is uh, is excellent. Are you okay for me to email these slides to the people who to ask them? Is that all right with you? More than happy, yeah. Maybe if I send them to you, and then you can share them um, Perfect. with everyone to come. I mean, it's just for me, um, j- just for my own experience, uh, journaling for me is, is such a big thing. And it's one of those things for me, which I don't actually do as a habit, but it's one of those things that if I've got anxiety before I sleep or when I sleep, I, I remind myself actually journaling will help. I just go and write things down on a bit of paper. And it's something you think that's not going to make any difference. You do it and you think, wow, that really, really helped. So it's a massive, massive thing. But look, that was, that was just fantastic. Like Owen's just put in the chat, awesome, awesome presentation, highly valuable information. And it really was. Just thank you so much, Will. It was brilliant. What's, what's the best way if people want to reach out to you directly and just, you know, if they want to reach out to you or spill, how, how's the best way for them to get in contact? Um, I'm happy to put my email. Um, I'll just type it into the Zoom chat there. It's will at spill.chat. If you have any questions, feel free just to reach out for me. I'm happy to, yeah, any questions, any recommendations you want for like further resources, further material, really happy to talk over email. 
Legend. Well, look, thank you so much. We are now busy you are. So thank you for taking this on, because I know you're taking a lot on at the moment. So I uh, appreciate you being here. And I'm sure our audience will both on the webinar and the podcast. So uh, to the audience, thanks a lot for viewing today. And thanks a lot to those who are listening on the podcast. We're going to be having a week off next week. Or I'm going to be having a week off next week. And then I'll be back the following week. We're going to be talking about using EVP as a means to uh, maintain, uh, retaining the talent in your business. And we all know we're in a bit of a talent war right now. Um, so it should be very interesting. So again, thank you to the audience. And we'll thanks again and hopefully see you all in a couple of weeks thank you for having me really nice to be here cheers guys see you bye